Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we have a fantastic interview with Dr. Drew Johnson. Dr. Johnson teaches biblical literature, theology, and biblical interpretation at the King's College. He's written many books, and his most recent one is titled Human Rights, The Power of Rituals, Habits, and Sacraments. Over the course of this interview, Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts are going to dive into Drew's background. They'll then move into a discussion of rituals and epistemology. As you likely know at this point, we are very excited here at Theopolis to have Dr. Johnson coming in a few weeks to teach our Pentecost intensive course on a biblical theology of ritual here in Birmingham, Alabama. You can find out more information about this course and how to register at the link I've provided in the show notes, or you can head to our website, theopolisinstitute.com, and look under Courses. Without any further delay, we want to thank you for listening and enjoy this interview with Dr. Drew Johnson. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts, who is our regular Uh, my regular conversation partner on the Theopolis podcast. And we're also joined by Drew Johnson. Drew is a professor at the King's College in Manhattan. He teaches Bible and theology there. And he's the author of a number of books, uh, Biblical Knowing, uh, Knowledge by Ritual, and more recently, a 2019 publication, Human Rights, The Power of Rituals, Habits, and Sacraments. And uh, Drew is going to be teaching our Pentecost term course in about a month's time uh, here in Birmingham. And uh, to introduce him to our Theopolis audience, uh, we thought it was good to have him come onto the podcast and discuss his work in ritual and other work that he's engaged in and to introduce him to the Theopolis world. So uh, welcome to the podcast, Drew. Uh, We're looking forward to having you in Birmingham. Oh, thank you very much. I'm both honored and terrified. <laughs> uh, you, you've been, uh, you complained when you saw the questions we were going to ask that there weren't any softballs. So um, let, me, let me start with a softball. Maybe this isn't. Maybe it'll turn out to be a, a harder question than I realize. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background, uh, your, your training, uh, what you're doing currently at the King's College. When I read bio, bios of, uh, on books and on your website, I see that they had quite a varied background. And so I'm curious to just get a little more introduction to who is Drew Johnson. Yeah. Um, so I, I was raised in Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, which is is the Birmingham of Oklahoma. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, garden, the garden city of Oklahoma, is that what you're saying? Yeah, it's, it's green country, actually. In Oklahoma, it's called green country because it's not dry and crusty like the rest of Oklahoma. But um, yeah, I was raised, uh, I had a weird uh, upbringing, and that's the only reason I'm bringing this up, is uh, I uh, was raised kind of very fundamentalist Pentecostal when I was a little kid, and then my parents got divorced, and my father had to end up moving away for job reasons. And my mom kind of went neo-pagan, eventually came out as a lesbian, uh, you know, feminist, uh, everything you can possibly think of associated with that. That's where she ended up. Um, she's doing she's doing very well in life now, actually. But for a while there, she, was, she went a little crazy. And I think she would say that as well, which explains that I went a little crazy as well during my teenage years. And um, she kind of just went off exploring things and left us kids to explore our, our own lives from 12 on. And so I, uh, looking for male companionship, went off and 
found uh, heavy metal first and then eventually punk and then we all became skinheads and you know shaved our heads and um, you know tooled around in Tulsa Oklahoma uh, <laughs> looking to drink and fight was essentially our motto so um, but that to say I was kind of outside of the Christian world at that point Christianity to me was just a few Sunday school classes I went to when I was a kid didn't really consider it at all uh, failed out of high school when I was 16 uh, joining joined the Air Force uh, as soon as I turned 17 um, and um, and uh, at that time coming to the Air Force I'd actually spent time with my father living with him for a little while he was actually a solid Christian the whole time uh, but he just wasn't uh, in the same state as me and so uh, through him and through some other people at his church they kind of like guided me very carefully back to reconsider God first and then Christ and um, and after a few experiences in the military over the years, um, I, uh, I think I think all my hope in humanity got shattered in the military, which was not what I was looking for, but that's what happened. Um, and then I eventually just, you know, felt like God was hunting me down, and I, I, that's how I would describe it. And I would say I eventually just gave in, um, and that's when everything changed for me. And I got excited. I finished undergrad, got married, um, uh, and a friend of mine who... Uh, at my dad's church who was kind of help ushering me towards Christianity, um, he talked me into going to seminary at Covenant Seminary in St. Louis. And uh, so I went to seminary and um, loved every minute of it. It was it, like outside of becoming a Christian, I would consider the four years of seminary like the most transformative time in my entire life. Um, I also loved being around a bunch of uh, mature men, mostly men, but men and women who could actually like talk about anything when it came to faith theologically you know a to z and uh and then i worked as a pastor for eight years did a degree in analytic philosophy at the uh university of missouri and i taught there for a little while uh, part-time and then i eventually ran into a guy named alan torrance i don't know if you've heard of him but he's um, a systematic theologian in one of the, the UK. clan yeah one, one of the torrance clan uh, well here's i how studied it. under him in st andrews oh Little did I know. Didn't I actually didn't know anything about him. I didn't know anything about the Torrances. Didn't even know that much about Bart, uh, quite honestly. And uh, But ended up going and studying with him and, and uh, Nathan McDonald, who's a Pentateuch scholar, and Kelly Iverson, who's a Mark scholar. So I met Alan Torrance, studied with him, uh, and finished my PhD there in about 2010, and eventually ended up here at the King's College. Uh, didn't plan on, did not want to move to New York City area, did not plan on it. Um, but we've actually loved it here, and we've been here for eight years now. Yeah. I think that's all that happened. It love New York City in spite of the fact that you can't find good barbecue. <laughs> in spite of the fact that, that barbecue is very hard to come, or at least, you know, again, coming from Oklahoma, and, and even St. I lived in St. Louis for 18 right. years. There's just good barbecue tradition there, you know? Yeah, if I, if I could ask a couple of things. You're a, a, an ordained minister in the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. Is that is that right? That's correct. And that's out of the, out of bounds. <laughs> yeah, and that was the kind of church you were pastoring in. No, actually, I pastored. I became a Christian and pastored in a non-denominational charismatic church. I see. Okay, yeah. and, and and when did you when did you move into the EPC? When I finished seminary, I actually looked at church planning in the PCA, mm -hmm. um, and we just didn't feel like God was calling us to it. Uh, it seemed right, and you know, I was having some theological quibbles with my church, nothing major, but you know, I, there was just some issues, uh, sacramental issues that I wanted to, and they were actually very amenable to different views on sacraments, but um, 
I, I wanted to baptize my children, basically. And uh, they were open to it, but they thought it would cause too much confusion in the church, which I respected. And we so we thought this is it. God's moving us into the Presbyterian church. But as we considered several callings, uh, we just, me and my wife, uh, we really felt like he was asking us to stay in this church. So I stayed six years more in that church. Um, and then when it was time to move, but it was non-denominational, and when it was time to move to Scotland, I wanted to work for a church in Scotland while I was there. Um, so it seemed like a good time to like find a denomination that I could work out of bounds in, and uh, the EPC, the PCA at the time. You might be familiar with this federal vision controversy that was going on in the PCA uh, at the time. It has some. <laughs> yeah, I was. I was going to. So here I was coming out of a charismatic church, going to the Missouri Presbytery meetings, considering whether or not I should get ordained out of bounds here. And guys like Mark Horn, um, uh, there was another guy there that were. Um, that were always being brought up in discussions. And, and my mentor, a covenant professor, he said, yeah, this might not be the time right now to uh, <laughs> see if we can bring in a guy who's coming out of a charismatic tradition out of bounds. So, <laughs> yeah. so uh, a lot of your writing in recent years has been on, as I mentioned at the beginning, on ritual, um, but also, interestingly, a combination of ritual and epistemology. And I'm curious about where those interests came from. Is that, was that part of your doctoral work uh, at St. Andrews? Yeah, that was my doctoral work was, well, not on ritual. Um, I Initially, I wanted to study for a PhD, uh, Vatican II Sacramental Theology, and then uh, couldn't get into any of the Catholic schools as it goes. Uh, and uh, so by the time I started talking to Alan Torrance about a project, this is the one that kept on coming back. Actually, that same mentor at Covenant Seminary, I taught a class on epistemology. Um, Esther Meek had moved at that point. And they needed someone to teach a class on epistemology, so they asked me to teach it. And um, and the guy, Mike Williams, who's a systematic theology guy there, he sat in the class as a minder, I guess, uh, make sure I wasn't going to spew heresy. He actually just heckled me the whole time. And then at the end of that class, he said, you know, you talk about your, your epistemology being biblical, but you don't do a whole lot in the way of showing it. Uh, he's like, if you want a PhD project, uh, there's a PhD project for you. So... He's actually the kernel uh, of that project. Um, and then as I worked through scripture, it just became obvious. I mean, it became textually obvious that uh, God was constantly asking Israel to do things, uh, and including embodying rituals in order that you might know. Um, and so I, I couldn't get away from how scripture weaved together um, the body and bodied practices and epistemology. Uh, I came out of, I was going to study research. I was going to be a research psychologist. That's what that's what I was planning on doing before my friend talked me into going to seminary. And so um, I couldn't get away from also that in, you know, scientific epistemology, you know, I had studied under uh, Esther Meek, you know, the, the role of the body and, and embodied appraisal in scientific epistemology. So it all just clicked into place for me. Um, um, it, it just seemed like... Uh, it seems so obvious after a while, and I couldn't get away from it. I think also I would add, you know, I was raised by a feminist, and, uh, you know, of all the things that come with feminism, some of the things which I would find problematic, I mean, one of the things that I really have appreciated about feminism and other ideological criticisms is that they they do not for one second let you forget that the embodied experience matters um, and, and that it's central to the way we think about the world. And so I think that uh, really helped, and I think... You know, some combat experiences when I was in the military also kind of put me in touch with how much of an a body person I am, <laughs> how, 
how much of my thought has really come through visceral experience. So the, did the doctoral dissertation that turn into a book? Yeah, Biblical Knowing is, uh, Wiffenstock asked me if I could, you know, not write my dissertation, but if I could write what I would want to say now that I know what I know from my dissertation. That was the book that came out. So I expanded it a lot. I actually published the dissertation with Rutledge. It's called um, Epistemology and Biblical Theology or something like that. Um, so, yeah, and then Wiffenstock came back and said, hey, we're doing these little short books, these companion books, where you're, like, for non-specialist, how would you say all the same things? So then I wrote a little 100-page book that's pink that I can't remember <laughs> the name of right now. <laughs> the pink book. <laughs> I've had the good fortune of all my books are different colors at this point, so I can, <laughs> I can name them by color, even if I can't remember the exact title. Exactly, yeah. I, I, I wanted to focus on one thing that you brought out, uh, which I think is a, a particularly interesting dimension of the work that you've done and that's the epistemology of scientific investigation which as you as you mentioned is something esther meek has worked on we've interviewed esther for this podcast and she's come and taught a course as you probably know at theopolis but the uh, what you do in a, a couple of your books is talk about the ritual dimensions of scientific investigation and i think that's a, a not just the embodiment of it's not just an embodied way of knowing but it's a ritualized way of knowing um, that's, I think that's not the way that people generally think about the way scientists come to know things. So I'm yeah. curious if you could elaborate on that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. Um, I make the joke and I think one of the books, you know, like, um, scientists never really have to study philosophy, uh, and certainly not theology and certainly not scientific philosophy or theology. And so, you know, even though they have a PhD where the PH is presumably a doctorate of philosophy, um, that we should probably strip the PH off their D's. Um, <laughs> Plain old D. <laughs> yeah, I, I have a doctorate, which is good enough. But, uh, you know, this is the problem. It, uh, even to this day, I have friends in my church who are working scientists and I, yeah, you know, I sound like a bigot now. No, I have lots of friends who are, who are working scientists. But so I always pose this whenever I meet a new scientist, I always pose this issue to them. Like describe for me how you know things confidently. And um, without a hint of irony, they'll just look you in the eye and start like enumerating uh, scientific positivism from the 1930s. Mm. Um, you know, we collect facts objectively. We clinically, you know, we find ways to not interfere, corrupt the data, you know, and, and we put these facts in a bigger pile. And I was talking to a physicist at uh, MIT once who um, basically recited Thomas Kuhn's critique um, at a conference. Uh, and he, he was a physicist from MIT, and he was saying, um, you know, all my colleagues, they think they're collecting facts, you know, in this clinical way and pu putting them in this big pile and sifting through them. But I think we're actually like really passionate about what we do and we see significance because of our passion and through our bodies. And afterwards I said, oh, it's amazing. You didn't mention Michael Polanyi or Thomas Kuhn. Like this is what they wrote about. And he said, who? And I thought, you know, Thomas Kuhn, the historian of science from MIT, uh, who, who wrote the most footnoted book in all of the humanities, uh, but they were completely unaware. Huh. And so I think, I think, you know, the fact that scientists them still, themselves still have this caricature of what they do um, is problematic. And then we're just repeating what the scientists are telling us. So Polanyi, I think, is very helpful because I read Polanyi before I met Esther Meek. Um, 
And he blew all the doors off because he was talking about, A, just the, the probabilities and how we know things and how we ascribe significance and how much we need our bodies and how much we need the social body of scientific enterprise and how much scientists need to trust each other and that that trust often is almost a, almost a blind faith in the mechanism of science and how little any one scientist knows and they have to trust in their colleagues to know anything else. Um, and he doesn't talk about it as much. He hints at it. But then I started thinking about when I got into the ritual work later, you know, um, five years later after the dissertation, that people are, you know, that scientists, this is the way I construe scientists. It's a bunch of highly skilled people who speak a very specialized language and they kind of make little rituals and then uh, they think they see something through these things. They see some uh, an aspect of reality that none of us else can see. Now, they don't see anything that's there, like, you know, they can't point to anything that's there on the page or like, we can all look at the same thing, but w I don't see what the scientist sees. Mm -hmm. um, Cause I'm not trained to. Mm -hmm. And so they see some invisible factor of what's going on in the visible world. And then that's not science though. That's just, you know, lab, lab practices. Um, it becomes science when they script it out very carefully so they can hand one of their colleagues in Switzerland or Texas or Birmingham uh, they can hand them a script and say, hey, if you perform this ritual exactly the way I performed it, you should be able to see what I see. And then the question of science is, do you see what I see? Um, and to me, uh, I mean, we can talk about, I, I think all of us hear the word ritual and we think about it strictly in kind of a religious or an occultic sense. Um, but uh, it was interesting when I started looking into the anthropology of science. So these are anthropologists who study scientists themselves. You know, as anthropologists can go out and study apes or they can study, you know, children. They study scientists in the lab. And the models they were, you know, the models they were using to compare what scientists do in many situations are like uh, models of Levitical priesthood from the Bible. That's the only one they could find that described anything like what you saw with Los Alamos lab, high-powered laser researchers. Mm -hmm. And when you read these very detailed descriptions by anthropologists of what scientists are doing in their research, like it's almost indistinguishable from uh, the ritual anthropology. Um, so again, it just, it just seems so obvious to me that what they're doing is creating rituals, rituals for the sake of knowing, and they're sharing them out uh, and, and asking people to perform them so that they might see something similar. So uh, give me give me an example of a scientific uh, a, a ritual script in a scientific setting. What 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 are you talking about concretely? Yeah. So there's there's uh, I forget who it is that said to know one thing you have to know a thousand things. But um, there there is kind of an aspect of there's so many rituals that were like rituals upon rituals. So um, <laughs> I would say something. I mean the example I think I use in the book um, is. Uh, <laughs> cellular tonicity, like uh, when cells are tonic or uh, when they have water coming or going out of them, basically. Mm -hmm. um, so that's something you have to look at a microscope. The reason I'm saying it's uh, rituals upon rituals is because I looked up, it turns out that a lot of people when they take college biology don't know how to use a microscope. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then I started looking up all of these instructions on how to use a microscope. And it's all about getting your body in a certain way and focusing your eyes in a certain way. And some of them, like I remember Rice University, they had like page upon page of instructions on how to view a cell on a microscope. Mm -hmm. So you just have to have the ritual skill of microscopy in order to then see this other thing, which is you're going to prepare a certain thing. You're going to scrape them in a certain way. You're going to put them on a piece of glass in a certain way. Um, 
you're going to add the right kind of water solution to it. You're going to apply the other piece of glass. You're going to put it down. You're going to rotate. You're going to, through the mastery of this piece of equipment, you're going to not look at the microscope, but you're going to look through it. Um, and then you're going to be able to see something. And even then, you're seeing something at the bottom of the microscope. All of us that took biology, we know, like the lab techs are sitting there telling us, okay, add this fluid, and now do you see what's happening to these cells? We're just trusting them that what we're seeing in the slide is what they're reporting to us theoretically what's going on. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's through doing that in so many different ways and, and uh, seeing the same thing from different angles that you eventually develop an idea of, okay, okay, I see what it means when they say a cell is hypertonic or a cell is hypotonic. I, I actually have seen it for myself when I add this kind of solution with this much salt or this much solution without this much salt. I now see what it happens down there down at the cellular layer that I can't you see without this microscope. And again, that's a very tightly choreographed and scripted uh, set of movements in order to understand this one little idea that when there's more salt in the water, it, it, I forget which way it goes, but it moves, water moves into a cell when there's more salt inside or out. I don't remember which way it goes, but it's a very simple concept. Mm -hmm. But all of that, uh, that oh, those ritualized acts have to come to fruition and that one, and grasping that one concept down at the bottom of the, the microscope. So when you say that they're, they go through these rituals in order to see things, and I think you said something like they see things that aren't there, you're, mm -hmm. that's, not, that's not a skepticism about this scientific discovery. Yeah, no, not at all. That's, that's, that means that the ritual is training you to see things that the, un, the unritualized uh, novice won't be able to see. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's the, the much better way to put it than what I just did. But um, uh, the x-ray is the other example that um, actually lots of people use. This. I thought it was just Michael Polanyi, but lots of people use the x-rays. I can look at the, an x-ray all day and all night, and I probably will, unless it's a, you know, a broken bone clean through, uh, I probably not be able to see anything in it. Um, but the ritualized eye, the guy who uh, has sat under the training of, of, his, um, of his radiology professor, you know, I, I've talked to, to doctors and, and radiologists, and I said, How do, you know, tell me what you did to learn to see a hairline fracture or a collapsed lung or something like that. Things are difficult to discern. And they'll tell you, you just look at hundreds and hundreds of x-rays and you don't just look at them. You have somebody over your shoulder pointing and saying, okay, pay attention to this and ignore all of this other stuff, right? Uh, these, are the, these are the clues, as Esther would say. These are the clues that kind of will help to connect the dots to cohere the pattern. I'm sorry, I'm... I'm appropriating Esther's language here. Yeah. <laughs> Alistair, do you want to jump in? Yes, I'd be interested to have a clearer definition of what ritual means. We sometimes use ritual to refer to things that we perform habitually and sometimes to very formal practices. You have a ritual associated with some cultic activity or something like that. How would you define ritual in a way that... Um, clarifies how it relates to habitual practice to formal practices or how it's distinguished from them so uh, okay this is a uh, tricky definition actually both uh, the essay your responses to my essay that are going to be posted on theopolis um, are pushing this button um, which is the right button to push um, but i take Catherine bell i thought she, i think she has probably the best definition here is that it's uh, a ritual is any normal human practice that is strategically re-employed for another purpose. 
um, maybe thinking in, in a kind of parallel fashion, they're kind of like metaphors, right? Normal language, free employed for this other purpose. I know metaphors, are, there's a whole, there's, there's a very difficult discussion about metaphors to be had there. But if we think of it that, that simply, so that we can think of um, baptism is bathing, uh, now re-employed for this other purpose. I, I, I'll be less interested at this point what the other purpose is, because that's a whole other conversation. Um, but just to say that there's, it's it's not that Jesus asked us to, um, have you guys seen uh, The Three Amigos? You know, the Steve Martin, Martin Short. Like, so there's a ritual that actually seems nonsensical. I mean, it's, in fact, it maybe borderline is whether it's a, a ritual or maybe an incantation, right? They're supposed to like, yell all these random words and point a gun in the air and shoot, you know, then shot the invisible horseman. Um, <laughs> but like, we don't take it as accidental that Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood. And he pulls out two things that actually look and feel viscously like, like flesh and blood, or at least to some extent. I mean, he could have used water to say, this is my blood if he wanted to. Um, so there's something about just the, uh, the normal practice that gets twisted in some way that both highlights the practice and also uh, reorients you towards the thing that it's twisting it towards. Um, so I, I think baptism is going to be, because um, Alistair, in your very excellent survey, you said, or sorry, in your response, you said, uh, you talked about circumcision, which I think is, is the hardest case when it comes to ritual in the Bible, um, and and I would say baptism is right there next to it. As you point out, I would tie baptism and circumcision conceptually together for the Hebraic thought. Um, but then you say, okay, well, if, if baptism is, is like a bath, but strategically re-employed, but we only do it once, um, then I think there's another way of looking at it is, you know, in the same way that you could say the weekly meal of um, the Eucharist, you could say, this meal is not like all my other meals, right? And in, in, in that it performs this function amongst God's people. Uh, you could also, you know, imagine that uh, in the shower every morning or how often you take a shower, <laughs> you might be thinking to yourself, this is not my baptism, right? This is different than my baptism. My baptism was a, a one-off affair. Um, I think there's a lot of fascinating things to be said about how Jesus re-ritualizes rituals from the Hebrew, uh, the Hebraic tradition into the new covenant. Um, but I want to go back to the other point you wanted to, you mentioned, which was what's the difference between a habit and a ritual or how do these things um, relate to each other? And I would just say, uh, I think the source of the ritual, the question here is who, not what. And so um, I would say habits will develop just out of our normal interactions with the world. Uh, the example I, I'm, I typically use is if you work in a butcher shop, um, and especially, or I, I worked in a kitchen when I was a teenager at an Irish pub, and um, after the knives are sharpened in the kitchen, you know, they have a professional knife sharpener come in. That's when I, well, I actually cut my finger wide open uh, one time. And then I realized, you know, I was 15, 16 years old. And I realized, uh, I started looking around at how everybody treats the knives. I realized they made all of these very conscientious movements with their body, especially after the knives were sharpened. Um, and so, uh, and, and then I thought, why didn't they tell me to... <laughs> Yeah, like why these guys didn't even like warn me that the, after I cut my finger wide open, they're like, "Oh yeah, they sharpened the knives last night. You got to be careful." Um, 
But that was just, they, these are rituals that they developed just from normal interaction with, you know, something dangerous or something they needed to be cautious with. Interestingly, I think it crosses over then at that point to uh, where it kind of becomes moves from habit to ritual is then when you teach somebody else, hey, embody these practices so that you can be safe. Um, because now you're taking, you're, you're, there's an element of trust, there's an element of community involved, um, and you're actually, and there's an element of scripting. I'm, I'm telling you to, to move your body in weird ways uh, in order to not have this thing happen to you that maybe you as a young man can't even imagine how this could go wrong. Uh, the internet is full of videos of young men who just can't imagine how anything can go wrong with what they're doing. Um, but yeah, that, that to me is the, the kind of liminal boundary between uh, habit formation and what comes to what I consider kind of full-bore ritual where, uh, where you begin scripting it for other people. So that's, that's where you would want to introduce the term ritual into scientific investigation rather than just talk about habits because yeah, because precisely. of the, the authoritative guide that's present yeah and I, I mean i would say even within the scientific enterprise this is this is how they do business uh it's not considered scientific knowledge if i just do it in my lab in some unique way i have to i have to script it out for others and they have to see it as well and that's when it starts to enter the realm of scientific knowledge mm -hmm. yeah and it's, it does seem like that emphasis of yours uh on the scriptedness at least of certain kinds of rituals, that that's uh, uh, diverges from some other discussions of ritual, uh, both in cultural anthropology today and in some Christian circles. Is that yes. is there a deliberate kind of re effort to introduce the the aspect of authority into these discussions? It's not. It's only deliberate in the sense that uh, I, I really consider myself um, a mediocre biblical theologian, um, <laughs> and so I. It, and when I work through scripture, I mean, I'll just say most of, of what I'm doing here is just an emphasis that I see in scripture that I can't get away from. It's the drum beats. Um, it's not these one-off syncopated rhythms. It's it's like just so over the over the head obvious that I can't get away from it. So I see authority, you know, whose voice you listen to is the question broached in the garden in Genesis 3. Um, and throughout the history of Israel, and then it doesn't surprise me that in the Gospels it becomes a central talking point of Jesus uh, and the narrators of the Gospels. Um, who's going to listen to whom and to what effect? And of course, you you know that listening here, Shema or Akuo, they, they, um, it's the same word that means for obey. So there's this kind of very subtle border between merely hearing something versus uh, embodying what whatever that thing obliges of you. Um, with the, imp the impulse being, if God has authenticated a prophet to you who speaks authoritatively on behalf of Yahweh, then uh, listening to that person entails obeying what they tell you to do. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and you, sorry, you asked about different Christian. So, yeah, I, I do think, uh, and I, I assume you're referring to like Jamie Smith's work. Right. Um, he, yeah. He's one that came to mind, yeah. Yeah, which funny enough, because um, uh, I know Jamie is listening right now, um, <laughs> that, yeah. <laughs> In 2013, I moved to Israel with my family to do uh, a research fellowship where I wrote, I basically did most of the work uh, uh, on this book, Knowledge by Ritual, where I really kind of took the time to hash out what I thought was going on in scripture. And I got back and somebody had sent, mentioned, you know, actually it was a Jewish scholar who mentioned, hey, have you seen this guy, James K. Smith, his work? I said, I keep hearing about this guy, but you know, I never actually picked him up. Uh, and then I picked it up and read, and I could not believe 
how many you know similar strokes he was taking or i should say that i was taking to him or um without without knowing his work at all um and it was students who kept on uh saying hey what do you think of jamie smith and i was like i haven't read him yet i'll get around to it and um <laughs> So then I actually thought I was terrified because I had that typical thought like, oh, I can't publish this book because I'm not saying anything new. Uh, you know, he kind of said all of this. And then uh, a mutual friend said, well, yeah, but you're coming from the biblical side, right? And you're doing all this anthropology work. I was like, oh, yeah, okay, that's right. So I would say mine arises strictly out of scripture. I'm not sure that Jamie's work, I don't know him um, at all, but uh, I don't get the sense with the way he's using scripture, he would even see his work as as he would see it as uh, commensurable to what's going on in Scripture, but not actually developed from uh, understanding what's going on in Scripture. And so I'd say that's probably the reason for the slightly different emphases, which I'm going to guess uh, only someone like you, Peter or Alistair, uh, pick up these different emphases. <laughs> I mean, they're pretty, they're pretty subtle, but for me, they're massively important. Mm. You talk about ritual as occasionally like a sort of metaphor and metaphors give us a particular angle from which to view things that are familiar to us so we might talk about the conscience as a co compass for instance it's an image that helps us to get inside something of what the conscience is and then within scripture we have a lot of metaphors that are used and sometimes very extreme ones like in the song of songs when we're going through the rituals of the liturgy for instance they're one of passage I found very helpful is from Mark Searle. He writes, discipline might be defined as the kind of self-control which frees one from distraction and preserves one from dissipation. Ritual behavior is a prime example of such discipline. By putting us through the same paces over and over again, ritual rehearses us into certain kinds of interaction over and over again, until the ego finally gives up its frenetic desire to be in charge and lets the spirit take over. The repetitiousness of the liturgy is something many would like to avoid, but this would be a profound mistake. It is not entertainment or exposure to new ideas. It is rather a rehearsal of attitudes, a repeated befriending of images and symbols, so that they penetrate more and more deeply into our inner self and remake and make us or remake us in their image. Talks about kneeling, the text of scripture, and the ways that these things are toyed with, befriended, rubbed over and over again until gradually and sporadically they yield flashes of insight and encounter with the reality of which they sing and the way that they mediate encounter. When we're talking about metaphor and the way that insight can arise from metaphor, there needs to be some sort of connection between the two terms of the metaphor. And I was wondering how you would see the way that we negotiate that distance between things. So I gave the example of Song of Songs earlier, where the distance between the two terms of the metaphor can be almost stretched to breaking, but yet those things are connected in a way that do that does still yield insight. When we're talking about ritual in the liturgy, often there's a danger of it becoming arcane and detached from the seeming world of reality that we live in. And there's also a danger of it becoming so trivial that it's very difficult for it to um, provide an alternative vantage point. It, or maybe even just becomes like a dead metaphor. How do we negotiate that? That's a long question, but hopefully you'll be able to get what I'm asking. Yeah, that's a beautiful quote, by the way. You'll have to send me that. Because um, I, I think that, that 
gets at so many of the issues of, uh, I, I mean, I, I came out of the charismatic church and um, of all the things I appreciate from that tradition, uh, one of the things that I grew to be a little bit angry about, um, although I, I think there's a, a little bit of self-deception, but there, were, there was a constant appeal to, I don't know if you've heard this language before, but to sing a new song to God. Mm. Um, and this very intense focus on extemporaneous expression, which makes sense if you think about speaking in tongues and um, that the Pentecostal interpretation of the events of Acts. But, um, and then what happens from that, and of course, the church that I worked in, there was a lot of people who came out of the Catholic Church or came out of the Lutheran Church and the charismatic renewals of the 1970s and 80s. And so they were hyper skeptical of anything that looks like rote practice, anything that looks like repetition in a very ironic way. Like, so they were, you know, they're afraid of repetition and, and rote practice. But, you know, when you listen to someone speaking in tongues, I can say this as someone who spent a lot of time in a charismatic church, you hear the same syllables repeated over and over and over again, right? Um, and so there is actually a lot of rote practice going on there. And I think it's, it's also so bizarre to me. I mean, it's, it's not that bizarre to me. I understand we're all humans and we suffer. But um, it is bizarre when you step back and think about that we don't think this way about rote practice in any other area of our life. Uh, like, it, like, can you imagine if you came home to your spouse and just said, well, I'm not going to give you a kiss on the cheek until I'm really feeling it, you know? <laughs> and actually, research on marriage rituals, these little tiny marriage practices shows that, no, that just those little physical contacts when you first see each other for the first time of the day and when you reunite at the end of the day, seem to make a big difference on, mm. uh, on the bonding in a marriage. And uh, math, you know, who, or, or maths for you, Alistair. I mean, who, who would ever think, uh, like, you shouldn't ritually, rotely memorize, you know, your times tables and your division tables? And, I mean, you're basically crippling something, someone for life mathematically if you don't make them do that work. And we've actually seen this in the United States where they've had movements where, like, nobody needs to memorize anything. You just need to understand how it works. And then the math professors 20 years later are saying, we, we can't do anything with these people. They don't, they, um, because they can't think through this problem algebraically or quadratically because they're stuck trying to work out the basic arithmetic of the problem. And it's through the rote performance that builds these conceptual schemes and paradigms and structures in, into us um, that allows us to see through the arithmetic into the quadratic side of the formula or the calculus side of the formula. And I think this, the same thing with, you know, if you've ever been in a church, so I go to a church, it's a Brazilian PCA church uh, emphasis on the Brazilian side. Um, and it's a very lively, it has a very non-denominational feel church. It's very low liturgy. I, you know, as a pastor in the church, uh, well, you know, Holy Trinity Church in um, St. Andrews, which is about the opposite. It's one of the highest lit liturgical churches uh, in Scotland. What happens, what, one of the things that I realize is uh, I had never been in a high liturgy church when we went there. And it took me a while to learn the liturgy. But once I did... Um, I could kind of see through it um, in the same way that, you know, learning how to x-rays at first, uh, learning how to read x-rays at first is a, um, you know, it's a wall of details and data and points and uh, flummox of black and white. But eventually you see through all that and you see this pattern cohere. And I, th and I'm, you know, I'm at a church where we play a lot of new songs, you know, like they'll say, this is an old one from five years ago, you know, and, uh, um, 
And I just realized how frustrating that can be. I know part of it's I'm in my 40s now, so I'm just getting crotchetier and, you know, um, get off my lawn kind of uh, mentality. But I, I've really come to appreciate uh, how much uh, kind of liturgical structuring allows you to worship in ways that um, novelty can hinder. Um, and so I think the idea of repetition as uh, problematic. Now, obviously, I mean, the funny thing about a dead metaphor, if you think, if you're trying to make the analogy between metaphors and rituals, is when a metaphor dies, that means it's become so ubiquitously useful that you don't have to think about it anymore. You can just think through it, right? Um, no, nowhere did this become more apparent to me than I was teaching in, actually in St. Louis at a college there, and I, I said something to a bunch of freshmen. I said, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. It was an ethics class. And a student stopped me, and, and she said, why would you ever throw a baby out with the bathwater? <laughs> I said, well, it's an expression, you know? And, and then it come to find out half the people in the room, 20 people in the room did not know what that expression meant. And then... I stood in front of the class and explained to them, you know, you're washing a baby, you know, the water gets dirty, you got to throw the water out, you don't want to throw it. And, uh, and they were just looking at me like I was from outer space. And it wasn't until that point that I realized how much the dying of the metaphor, how much work that had done for me in my conversations. And, and if you look at, you know, the way we use language analogically and metaphorically, it's, you know, it's layer upon layer upon layer. So maybe I want to say something similar about ritual and say that that rituals are like ladled and basted and layered in so heavily that to talk about them is almost like, you know, we're talking about breathing and while we're talking about breathing, we're, we're breathing <laughs> in order to talk about breathing, right? Um, so I don't think we can get away from it and I don't think we want to disdain repetition. I think, um, and, and the, I think what we want to disdain is people, I'm going to tread carefully here, who enjoy the repetition so that they don't have to engage. Um, so I'll, I'll just anonymize this. I have friends who are Jewish who tell me that there are certain synagogues in Jerusalem that certain people will go to because they say the prayers the fastest. Mm. Like they're, they're, you know, they're trying to get to work in the morning. They want to go do morning prayers. And so they go to that particular synagogue because... Uh, they 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 basically run through the prayers so fast that you if you're listening you can't actually understand what they're saying, mm-hmm. uh, but they're just trying to race to the end, and that to me seems problematic. Yeah, so the the ritual becomes a becomes a screen that you're hiding behind instead of a, yeah oh uh, yeah that's uh, a good way to put it. Go back to um, Alistair's question. Part you were touching on it there at the end. The part of it had to do with the distance between when you talk about metaphors, oh, the distance yes. between the two terms, and you weren't. You weren't meaning to imply that a dead metaphor does a good bit of work because you don't have to explain it. Uh, you aren't implying uh, we're trying to somehow um, kill the kill the ritual uh, so that it does more work. Uh, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it's it's probably just an unfortunate use of terms. Dead metaphor sounds bad. Uh, dead ritual sounds worse. Um, but yeah, what I mean, but the dying of the metaphor means that it kind of enters the bloodstream. It's it's uh, it, it feels so natural that you don't ever have to stop and think about it, so that you can think through it, that you can use it in discourse. It doesn't become stiltifying; it becomes uh, enabling, I guess, in a good way. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I do not want to suggest that at all. This is this is my body becomes instead of being some strange um, uh, a comparison. 
that uh, you need to need to figure out and try to wrestle with, uh, that becomes embodied, and then that becomes a source of insight rather than something that you need to try to explain. And, and you're trying to trying to bring these two terms together, the bread and the body. You're trying to bring these two ther- terms together when you're yeah. first encountering it. Then when you embody it, those two things are together, and so you can reason about the church, the liturgy, the world from, from within that metaphor of uh, body and bread. Yeah, and you can and you can rest in it as well. I mean, I think Sabbath rest is found. I mean, I, I don't know if you've ever been in a culture where you're trying to speak the language. Um, yeah, I did live in Scotland for a while, and I really tried, but I was never successful in speaking uh, English in a Scottish way. But um, you know, there. But if you're like Spanish or Portuguese, I you know I uh, have been in countries where I've been 24 hours a day. You're trying to speak that language, and of course, I was doing it older, so I didn't think in that language. I thought in English. And then was constantly trying to translate it to think in, in terms and one thing in terms of another thing that I was more familiar with, and it's just exhausting. Uh, I mean, you realize why immigrant uh, immigrant communities often cluster in churches and other places is because they just want to be with somebody where they don't have to constantly think about uh, what they're saying and how to perform that in their mouth and their chest and their diaphragm. Um, and I think the same thing with ritual is. You know, imagine if we actually had to constantly think through every single, you know, physical embodied movement that we're doing that's been scripted for us and try to think about how that relates to this, that, and the other. It's just exhausting. There's no rest in that. Um, and I can't imagine in any way that, uh, you know, that Jesus is gathering his flock together to exhaust them. That just doesn't, that doesn't make sense. Uh, properly exhausted in, in strategic moments, yes. When we talk about ritual in the Old Testament, I think... We come to a book like Leviticus, and we're going through the book of Leviticus at the moment in our podcast, but the rituals of Leviticus are just strange to us. They're very foreign, and they seem to be based upon a way of experiencing and conceiving the world that is alien to us today, one that is very analogical and concrete, a concrete form of logic, um, whereas our modern form of engaging the world is very abstract. Um how does that change in our relationship to the world and in our forms of logic um, alter our relationship to ritual? And should we try and recover a more analogical way of experiencing the world? And how can that change our way of reading scripture? Um, yeah, that's a great question. I think um, I'd say two things. Uh, first, I would say, the rituals in Leviticus are not that strange. Um, and by that, I mean, a, well, A, we don't have the rituals, right? All we have is what Leviticus reports. And as many people have said, we, there's not enough information even in Leviticus to perform one of these rituals. Um, so it's, it's scant on details. Uh, it, I talk about in the book um, the time when I went to, I don't know if either of you have been to the uh, Samaritan Passover where they invite the public, because the Samaritans still on Mount Gerizim, right up outside of Nablus, they still do live animal sacrifice according to the the Samaritan Torah. Um, And so I got to go witness their Passover sacrifice. um, And that was kind of eye-opening to me. Uh, I happened to be with a Brazilian Brazilian friend who was staying with us in Israel. And... um, you know, as we were watching it, we were, we're, he's an Old Testament professor in Brazil, and so we're like taking notes, swapping notes, talking about what we're seeing, trying to figure out what they're 
improvising from which parts of the Torah and, uh, and how far they're improvising certain parts. And, um, and then at some point they, they have a bag, uh, you know, they're getting ready to put the lambs on these giant fires that were in these concrete pits in the ground. Um, and right before they put them on the fires, they started slathering them with coarse salt. And as soon as they did that, my Brazilian friend turned to me and he goes, ah, chuhasco, uh, which uh, is the Brazilian ter- or the Portuguese term for barbecue. This is how Brazilians <laughs> barbecue is. They take good cuts of meat and they slather salt on it and then they slow roast it over a fire. Unlike Americans who take the meat that falls off the floor at the meat processing plant and we smother it with sauce. Um, they... Uh, so as soon as he said this, this is, this is one of those few moments in my life where like it all flipped for me. Um, and I realized, oh wait, uh, this is, this, my meat is also, uh, sacrificed. Uh, it's not sacrificed in this ritualistic way to Yahweh, but, uh, every, every piece of meat I've ever had, you know, basically comes the same route. Somebody killed it. Somebody prepared the meat. Somebody cooked it. Um, and, and I've even done that in a, in a communal setting. I mean, in some other countries, we've killed the animal too. Most of the time we get prepackaged meat. Um, but, you know, it's not unusual in a lot of Christian communities around the world to start with a live animal and to end with a barbecue. Um, and, and to there, it's just for the sake of what they call fellowship, right? The ritual of fellowship. Um, but I, I just want to suggest that a lot of what's going on there is not actually that strange. I think we've been pre-programmed. Uh, and my, I mean, I was raised in Oklahoma, so I can't help it. Like in the 1970s and 80s, it was all about the Satanists were stealing babies and doing these dark ceremonies in the woods and stuff. And um, so this is the, that was my primary lens. And it was only after watching an actual animal sacrifice, having myself slaughtered some animals, just a, a few in the past, going, oh, this is actually not that strange at all. Um, it's just strategically re-employed towards this one particular end with Passover. The strange thing about Passover is that you're supposed to sit down with your sons and while you're pouring over this meat, reinterpret the history of Israel and their present reality in light of the history of Israel with them. That's actually the strange part of the Passover uh, ceremony. I mean, who does that over a McDonald's burger, right? This is, uh, I used a term in the book that I haven't actually used in a long time, but I called it, I called that uh, the idea that the modern world uses deductive logic and abstraction in this new, wholly new, crazy way or whatever. Uh, I call it verbal docetism because, and I only, I'm only using docetism to mean that it seems like that's the case, but I think when you break it down, it really is, uh, we're still doing analogical reasoning. And let me give an example. This kind of goes back to the science issue is, I was uh, talking at this church in Albuquerque, um, which had a lot of engineers from IBM and scientists from the, um, the nuclear weapons lab that go to this church. It's a big church. And um, so we were doing this weekend conference, and it turned out that like almost all the guys and gals in the audience worked at either IBM or the research lab. They're all engineers and scientists. And so I'm doing my bit where I'm describing to them biblical epistemology and what scientific epistemology is like and how scientists even themselves get this wrong. And one of them stood up at the end and said, well, hey, I'm a scientist and I work on this stuff. And I agree with everything you said. Like the way you describe science, that's actually the way we do it. I've actually been telling people in my lab, this is, you know, that we're we're telling ourselves the wrong story about science. And he says, but here's my problem. If, if we misunderstand what we're doing so, so poorly, right, or so egregiously we misunderstand what, even what we're doing, then why does our stuff work? 
Like at the end of the day, I make stuff and it works and it works really well. It works better than anything in the history of humanity has ever, what this guy happened to work on uh, the Watson uh, computer, the neural network systems for Watson computing. Um, and I said, that's a great, that's a great question, uh, which I think has a very easy answer is that uh, you submit to reality and you let reality have the final say, um, or I'll quote Esther Meek here, you know, reality gives back as good as it gets, right? Um, and you let your rituals interacting with reality inform the way you think about the thing you're studying itself in a way that I think theologians could probably stand to appropriate. Um, and you don't come up with high-minded, you know, you don't, I've never heard of an engineer talk about the ideal forms of flip-flop chips in the heavens. Uh, like you're dealing with the actual silicon down here on the ground. And so we can talk about all these abstract notions, but at the end of the day, uh, when, when you actually describe, and this is what Michael Polanyi did, he said, this is what scientists are saying, but here's what we actually do. Um, we're actually just fully embodied and, and we're fully participating in an analogical system of reasoning. Um, and, our, and our words, I would say, are merely tools to express what we already know, not the knowledge itself. Um, and so I think we just need to tell ourselves a better story. And I presume, with no evidence to base this on, that understanding what we're doing will help us to be more human uh, than we previously were, which I think a lot of what happens in the kind of European Enlightenment ending in logical positivism and all the, the waves that came after that, a lot of that was just basically dehumanizing what uh, our, our ways of being together and knowing together. And you're saying that it, it didn't really describe what people were actually doing anyway. And it's not realistic. I mean, I, I studied analytic philosophy and it wasn't until I studied, um, I don't know if you've heard of naturalized epistemology, but it's a group of uh, WVO, Wilford Quine, if you, if you know Quine, uh, you know, it's, it's the cadre that says, you know, we need to quit talking about knowledge as like some idealized version of truth in a discrete setting with a rational adult European male understanding it, you know. Um, and we just need to talk about how people actually know the world around them. Uh, and they came up with some very refreshing view. You know, they have some problem problems to the view um, because they're all atheists. Uh, so they want to cut God and testimony out. But... Um, I think overall that's a refreshing view. And I think that's what scripture is trying. I mean, I can point to instances in scripture where the prophets seem to be saying, uh, give up your fluffy theology and start paying attention to what's actually happening on the ground. Mm -hmm. So I see, uh, Drew, that uh, your your next project or one of your upcoming projects is uh, not, not narrowly on ritual or epistemology, but a larger project on a, a philosophy of the Christian scriptures, which I, I take to be kind of an... Christian analog to uh, Yoram Hazoni's book on the philosophy of the Hebrew Bible. And I, uh, can you describe what you're trying to do in that? And you were t telling us before we started the podcast, that you're also starting a, a center there at the King's College where you're going to be promoting the notion of Hebraic philosophy, using the scriptures as a, as a source for philosophical reflection. Yes, and if those aren't familiar with uh, Yoram's book, Yoram is a close friend of mine. We've worked together on uh, a couple uh, Templeton, or I've worked with him on his Templeton projects, and uh, we're actually looking at uh, doing more together. 
Uh, and I asked him, I said, hey, you know, would you mind, because he's been pushing me, hey, you have a whole system out there, why don't you put it out there? And I'm like, yeah, it's not how scholarship works, Yoram. You don't put systems out there, you put bits out there. Um, and so, uh, so I finally acquiesced and I said, do you mind if I frame it as a, a response, uh, a, you know, at least one version of a Christian response to what he's done in that book where he basically argues that that the Hebraic authors are essentially uh, doing philosophy of a very particular style. And I think a lot of, uh, I disagree with him on some of the things, but I think uh, most of that is, is, it's all worth reading and most of it's uh, pretty good. Um, so I, I think uh, he, he takes a fairly negative slant towards the New Testament, and I think he uh, mischaracterizes it a bit. Um, but... Um, but overall, I think we have a lot of harmony. I just want to do a little bit more work to show exactly. So I'm, I'm digging down into like, how does narrative work as philosophy? How does poetry work as philosophy? Um, how do arguments work as philosophy? Um, you know, propositional arguments as well. Um, and then doing a bit of comparative work to the ancient Near Eastern literature as well. Not a whole lot, because I'm not an ancient Near Eastern person. But in, and fortunately, there's been a whole you know slew of ancient Near Eastern scholars who already noticed I mean, the interesting thing to me, if you want the sales pitch, this is where I got hooked, is I started reading ancient Near Eastern scholars who compared the Hebrew Bible, you know, these are people, Egyptologists and Assyriologists and even um, Greco-Roman scholars, when these people who know all of this literature, and they know the Hebrew Bible as well, if you ask them to clump up these intellectual traditions by affinity, like which ones are most like each other, interestingly, when I asked that question to biblical scholars, they will put the Hebrew Bible with Egypt and Mesopotamian uh, text. Uh, but ancient Near Eastern scholars, the people who study Egyptian uh, literature and uh, Mesopotamian literature, they say, oh, no, 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 Hebrew Bible, that's nothing like this one. It's over here with the Greeks. Uh, it's only, it's only the, Hel the Hellenism that eventually breaks, the, they put this all with mythology. They anchor it all in mythology, but it's only Hellenism that finally breaks out of mythology. But prior to Hellenism, it's only the Hebrew Bible that gets even close. And, um, you know, they even talk about the Hebrew Bible as the height of critical intellectualism. Hmm. Now, that's remarkable on several fronts, uh, one of which is that biblical scholars don't know this often. Um, many, many do, but I'm, I'm surprised how many people have never heard this before. Um, and then second, you know, the, the idea is that if Christianity were not just ha handed a set of sutras or oracles or moral guidance or rules to be followed, but we're actually, uh, we're handed um, a tradition uh, that has a very specific thought world and a way in which you can enter that thought world through, uh, the, no, no surprise, ritualized practices, belonging to a community and following certain practices in the same way that, uh, you know, the scientific community could be described in a roughly uh, parallel way. And so the, the goal of the Center for Hebraic Thought that we've started with a generous grant from the Philos Project um, is to uh, start making this a known thing, uh, start getting scholars to take this idea more seriously that there's an intellectual world of the Bible um, and, that, and that it, again, according to the scholars who know the literature the best, it, it at least rivals the Hellenistic tradition. Uh, I would probably argue that it trumps it in some very significant ways. But uh, not that the Hellenistic tradition is worthless and we need to toss it to the side, but to, to say that we have something um, that is worth investing our time thinking about how do these people think about the world and how are they asking us to think about the world because if the God who created the world stands behind these texts and speaks through these texts, 
um, then it seems like he's uh, offering us a type of wisdom that is unavailable in any other sphere. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's probably for me one of the biggest, you know, if I talk about the Hellenistic style of philosophy versus the Hebraic style of philosophy, probably, the, you know, if we were to go back in the ancient world and discuss these two styles, you know, Greeks would be fine until I got to the issue of uh, the fact that for for the Hebrew authors, this wisdom is available to everybody. It's egalitarian uh, in its breadth. Uh, and of course, Hellenists and, and, and Assyrians and Babylonians and Egyptians would say, no, 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 This is for the sages only. It's only for the elites. Uh, but that God offers this to all means that he offers this to his church. What stage are you in in that, uh, the writing of that book? Uh, so the book was written last year. I, I did a research fellowship in... Um, or two years ago in St. Andrews, but I'm, um, I'm having friends tear it apart because uh, it's a big claim book uh, with lots of moving parts. And I, I want to make sure that um, I'm getting all the best critique before I, I haven't even gone to a publisher with it yet. So, Thank you to Drew Johnson for joining us in the Theopolis podcast. Uh, we very much look forward to uh, hosting you here in a, a few weeks in Birmingham. Look forward to your course and to your upcoming publications Uh, Thanks, Alistair, for joining us and uh, for having the conversation. And uh, thank you all for listening. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.